The ox and the ass are a staple of the nativity tableau, nearly omnipresent in the visual and iconographic tradition, even making their way into various hymns. But the fact is that they are never mentioned in the gospel narratives. What is the source of this enduring imagery? It first appears in a 2nd century non-canonical Christian writing, the Proto-Evangelium of James, where they fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah that the ox knows its owner and the ass its master's crib. And the image can be found as early as a 4th century sarcophagus in Milan. Other than Isaiah, one of the only biblical references is to be found in the legislation of Deuteronomy, where the Torah declares, You shall not plow with an ox and an ass together. It is part of a set of laws that ban the mixing of dissimilar materials, whether animals, seeds, or types of thread. St. Paul draws on this when he exhorts the Corinthians not to be unequally yoked by marriage with non-Christians. The Torah is also the source for the interpretive tradition that sees in the ox, a clean animal according to the Jewish dietary laws, a symbol of the Jewish church, while the ass is an unclean animal, represents the Gentile church, together feeding at the Christmas manger. But if I may be so bold, this ban against plowing with an ox and an ass is a rather nonsensical law, as it simply doesn't work to plow with animals of different stride lengths. It is actually such a bad idea that the wily Greek hero Odysseus attempted to escape being recruited for the Trojan War by plowing with an ox and an ass to demonstrate that he was insane. He was forced to drop the act when the envoys placed his infant son before the plow, forcing him to choose between maintaining the deception or preserving the life of his son. It was of no small import that Odysseus would join the expedition. Had he not, the endeavor to reclaim the beautiful Helen, seduced and abducted by Paris, Prince of Troy, would have failed, for it was crafty Odysseus who planned the stratagem of the Trojan horse. It was his idea for the Greek army to feign defeat and retreat, leaving behind the great wooden horse as a gift to the Trojans. Hidden inside, of course, were Greek warriors led by Odysseus himself, and when night fell, they emerged to open the gates to the returned Greek army who would sack the city, burn it, and reclaim Helen. I will return to Odysseus in a moment, but first we need to consider why God needed to prohibit something that very few people were ever likely to do. It seems to me that the Torah bans plowing with ox and ass in order to alert us to the presence of God. The Jews were also forbidden to consume blood, because life is in the blood, and life belongs to God alone. Likewise, it belongs to God alone to overcome dissimilarities and reconcile oppositions. When we see the one who plows with ox and ass, we should recognize that God is present. Is it not Jesus who fulfills Isaiah's prophecy that the lion shall lie down with the lamb and the bear with the calf? It is he who unites the Jews and the Gentiles, slaves and freemen, men and women, making all one in Christ. And it is he alone who can bridge the gap between God and man, uniting in himself both the human and divine natures. The events we celebrate tonight are part of a story that has parallels with Odysseus and the Trojan War. Tonight's story begins not with the seduction of Helen, the most beautiful woman in the world, but with the seduction of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Man, the crown of God's creation, the most beautiful of all his creatures, was seduced by the devil and taken into captivity, made subject to death. 
Like Odysseus, our Lord feigns insanity, not to avoid war, but to wage it. He harnesses the mismatched team of ox and ass to his gospel plow. He clothes his omnipotence in the mantle of our frail humanity. And having caparisoned himself in foolishness, he goes forth plowing and sowing the gospel in search of lost man. When he comes to the enemy's stronghold, the city of hell that is walled with lies and whose gate is death, he, again like Odysseus, feigns defeat, accepting the death that is our lot, offering his human body as a trophy for the devil. When the devil in his pride takes the bait and draws our Lord within his city, our Lord reveals his might. He sacks the devil's fortress, sets it aflame, bursts its brazen gates, and leads out man, a slave no more. In his incarnation, our Lord reveals himself as the one who can overcome all dissimilarity, who alone can unite that which has nothing in common, who reveals that man is made for union with God. He does so not by eliminating the differences, but by love. Nor is it against either our nature or his. He humbles himself like a parent walking with a toddler. He does not expect us to match his strides, but fits himself to fit our hesitant wobbly steps as we cling to his supporting hand. Our imperfection is no obstacle for him, nor does it diminish his glory, for this reveals him even more clearly as father and ourselves as his sons. We are living in a period of great polarization, where the differences are profound and tenaciously held. Opponents routinely disparage and vilify each other. There are occasional calls for unity, but what I have not heard are calls for love. Our Lord triumphs by lovingly taking on our humanity, knowing it from the inside out, suffering our weaknesses and fears so that he can speak to us his healing word. Are we willing to follow his example and love those who disagree with us? Are we willing to risk that in seeking to love them and know their lives and understand their point of view, we may find that it is we who must change? Yet the reward is great, for those who are peacemakers shall truly be called sons of God.